Cube, there are two key people. The first of these people is Joseph of Arimathea. I'm not sure how much you know about him. He was from the hill country of Judea. He was very well known among the early Christians as a good and righteous man. And he is honored and he is mentioned in all four Gospels. He was a member of the Jewish parliament, which was called the Sanhedrin. And according to the Gospel of Matthew, who, he was a very wealthy man. Even though he belonged to the Sanhedrin, he was not a Pharisee. He was a Sadducee. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Their main interest was in the political life of the Jewish people. Now, we don't know how he became a secret follower of Jesus, but we know according to the Gospel of Mark that he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God to come. The other important man in our story is Nicodemus. We know a little bit more about him. He also was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was not a Sadducee. He was a Pharisee. And unlike Joseph of Arimathea, he taught that there was a resurrection from the dead. But it only came for those who followed all of the Old Testament laws and all of the Old Testament customs. He had become probably the leading rabbi on the Sanhedrin, but he was fascinated by the teachings of Jesus, and we know that he came secretly at night to find out more. And that's where Jesus challenged him and said, you need to be born again instead of trying to follow and live by the hundreds of Pharisaic laws. Now these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, could not have been further apart theologically. And until they came to faith in Jesus, they lived by two totally different philosophies of life. I mean, Joseph believed in salvation by good politics. Nicodemus taught obedience to the 613 laws which the Pharisees summed up in the Old Testament. Joseph of Arimathea said, when you die, you're dead. There is no resurrection. Nicodemus said, when you die, you come back to life if you've kept those 613 laws. But coming from two different directions, they had both come to believe somehow that Jesus was truly the Messiah. So when they heard that Jesus was going to be crucified, they both knew that they had to do something very quickly to provide for a decent disposal of this body. If nobody did anything, the Romans would just leave the body hang there on the cross. Now most of us picture the bodies hanging very high in the air, but the feet would have only been maybe four or five inches from the ground. They would have left the bodies there for the wild dogs, the jackals, and the vultures to eat. And time was running out for Joseph of Arimathea and for Nicodemus because Passover would begin at sundown. It was time for their Seder meal. Now Mark reports in his gospel that it was 9 o'clock in the morning when Jesus was crucified. Three hours later, Mark writes, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. We know then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus shouted out those words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Mark adds, and then he breathed his last.
As soon as he knew that Jesus had died, Joseph of Arimathea rushed very quickly to Pilate's office, the Roman governor, and he asked permission to bury the body. Pilate first had to check with the centurion to make sure that Jesus was really dead. And then I think Joseph probably had to send a message home. He probably had to tell his family, I'm about to touch a defiled dead body. And by following Old Testament law, it means that we're going to need to postpone our Passover Seder supper for at least a month. Joseph then very quickly would have gathered the linen shroud and, and took the body down from where it was nailed on the cross. And one can only imagine what a difficult thing that would have been to take that body off the cross. And I have a feeling that Joseph was a little bit surprised to suddenly see another member of the Sanhedrin there, Nicodemus, the great rabbi, the great rabbi who showed up carrying 100 pounds of aloes and myrrh. John's Gospel records that together these two men took the body of Jesus, wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. And as they were doing that, no doubt, Nicodemus said, we're taking part, we're taking care of part of the job, but where are we going to bury Jesus? And Joseph replied, I've just got a brand new family tomb cut out of rock in this garden over here. It's never been used, and I would be honored to have the Messiah buried there. We can lay him in that tomb. So these two men who were diametrically opposed to each other, at least theologically, together carried that body into the garden, rolled that big circular stone away from the front of that tomb, laid that corpse inside, and sealed it shut. Mark in his gospel mentions Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joses, also saw where the body was laid. Of course, we know that on Easter Sunday, they went back there, and there was no body. Now, that's the story. That's the setting of what Matt read to you tonight. But I want to take you back to an interesting detail in John's account. It said that upon Jesus' death, Nicodemus and Joseph wound the body of Jesus with linen cloths and 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now, this amount of burial myrrh and aloes would have been an extreme amount, even for one of the most wealthy men, even for a pharaoh in Egypt. The usual custom was to use only 20 pounds. I mean, think about this for a moment. You know, any of you that have ever baled hay, and I remember doing that as a young man, I think a hay bale weighs somewhere between 60 to 70 pounds, but it's pretty compacted and compressed into some sort of shape by a hay baler. But in Jesus' day, there was no such machine. So somebody would have been having to tote a rather big sack of 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes. I want you to think about this scene for a moment on this good Friday evening. The scene of Joseph carrying the maybe 150 to 170 pound body of Jesus and Nicodemus with a big sack of 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes for the burial. You know, putting myself in the text, 
I see two men who love Jesus enough that they would even risk their own lives to see to it that the Lord would receive the best burial that they could give. So Joseph of Arimathea donates a very expensive brand new tomb and Nicodemus, not wanting anyone to smell that decomposing body of Jesus, brings 100 pounds of costly burial aloes. When people walked by that tomb later, Nicodemus wanted them to notice the beautiful smell in the myrrh and not the rotting flesh of a dead God. Now, I'm not sure where these two guys were doctrinally at this point in time, but I do know that they failed to understand a truth that Jesus had delivered to them at one time. As Jesus spoke to the Sanhedrin, to the scribes and the Pharisees, he said to them in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They obviously did not understand what Jesus was talking about. But then again, I don't think a lot of people today understand Jesus all that well. A couple of years ago, I attended a funeral, and the pastor there referred to Jesus as a mourner who wept at the funeral of his best friend Lazarus. In fact, he quoted John 11:35 to prove his point, that simple little verse that says, Jesus wept. When I heard that, I thought, I don't think Jesus was crying because Lazarus was dead. I mean, he certainly didn't seem too concerned when he found out Lazarus was sick because he waited a couple of days and actually waited until he died. I'm certain Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus because of the unbelief of the people who did not know who he was, even though he had shared with them on many occasions that he was Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the resurrection and the life. He was not crying because Lazarus was dead. He was crying because of the faithlessness of Mary and Martha. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? I think it's because of the the rebuke that he gave to them when he said, I am the resurrection of the life. He that believes in me, even though he is dead, yet shall he live. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to that story again of Joseph and Nicodemus. And I tell you, I, I picked out, you know, when you come to preaching around this time of the year, you got the same stories every year. And you kind of hunt around, and i got to tell you, when I read it this year, I couldn't help but pick out Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, you got to love these guys. I mean, these guys really mean to do well here. So they want the body of Jesus to be preserved of any death odor, so much so that they wrap it in five times the amount of spices as was necessary. Now, maybe I got too much of an imagination, but can you imagine how huge the totally wrapped body of Jesus must have been with a hundred pounds of spices wrapped all around it? I mean, it must have been some sight. But they probably thought, you know, when you got a dead God, it's important to make sure that he doesn't appear to be dead, right? After all, they couldn't have a dead Jesus body stinking up the place. So they did what a lot of people do. They tried to cover up the fact that their God 
was dead. You know, people still do that. They try to cover up the fact that their god is dead. Some places in the world, they build huge cathedrals, huge churches to worship him in, but they never let him come into their hearts. They go to church and put on fake smiles, while at the same time, they have incredible turmoil in their lives, and their souls are in utter despair. Oh, they would never say that their God is dead, but the very fact that they live faithless lives and don't really believe Jesus and his word brings Jesus to tears, even as Mary and Martha's lack of faith brought tears to his eyes. So friends, what do you do when God is dead in your life? Do you hide the fact? Do you create the facade that says, you know, God is alive in my life, even when you, you're really not sure? Or do you cover up the fact with that plastic grin that says, nothing could possibly be wrong with my relationship with God? Can I say something to you? I, I know I can. I'm going to be somewhat blunt here. You know, it doesn't really matter how much prefer, it doesn't really matter how much perfume you put on a dead body. If that dead body doesn't come back to life pretty soon, it's going to stink and everybody's going to know it. See, evidently, Joseph and Nicodemus did not have faith that Jesus would really rise on the third day as he said he would. If they had, they would have merely taken him off the cross and laid him out there for the entire world to see. I mean, can you imagine that? That lifeless, stiff body of Jesus suddenly coming to life three days later. What a miracle that would have been, as if it wasn't enough miracle anyway to come out of that tomb. You see, that's what the resurrection is really all about. Sin can do its worst, but when it's all said and done, there is resurrection power. That's power available to you through Jesus, and what power that is. I mean, he told Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. See, not only could he be resurrected, he says, I was the resurrection. I am the resurrection. And this is important, friends. This is important when some part of your life appears to be dead. When something dies in your life and you begin to wonder what greater thought, what greater power than to be able to say, Jesus is my resurrection. Jesus is my power. Jesus is my hope. See, we celebrate the resurrection about once a year. In fact, we sometimes make jokes about people who show up. We call them TCEs, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. But you know, they celebrate it once a year, and sometimes that's all we celebrate. But you know, there's a celebration that takes place in heaven continuously. They're not going to be celebrating Easter on Sunday because it's Easter. The Bible says that heaven celebrates when? It celebrates every time a sinner comes to know Jesus. We get excited over a holiday that's called Easter, but the angels are probably getting excited minute by minute and are throwing a heavenly party every time a new sinner gains new life. In 2 Corinthians it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. See, that's what Jesus is all about. He's all about life. He's all about abundant life. I remember watching the Lutheran Hour years ago, and they would open up the Bible, and a little light would shine on it. And I think it's shown down on John chapter 10, 10, where it says, I have come that they might have life, abundant life. That's what he came to bring us. God is not about all the dead stuff in your life. He's not about covering up a dead soul with false but politically correct religion. He is the resurrection, and he is the life. He is the newness of life that comes when a person experiences real salvation, when a person steps across the line and says, yes, this Jesus, who I thought once was dead, is truly alive. If you're wondering whether you have a dead God or a living God, perhaps you should ask yourself this question. Am I trying to cover up stuff in my life? Or am I allowing the resurrection power of Jesus to bring newness of life to my soul? There is a famous sermon preached by an elderly black pastor. It was a simple sermon that I want to paraphrase just a little bit in closing this evening. It goes this way. It's Friday. Jesus is arrested in the garden where he was praying. Your God seems about ready to die, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are hiding, and Peter's denying that he knows the Lord. Your God is getting ready to die but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is standing before the high priest of Israel, silent as a lamb before the slaughter. Your God may seem dead now, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is beaten, mocked, and spit upon. Your God may seem dead now, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Those Roman soldiers, they're flogging our Lord with a leather scourge that has bits of bone and glass and metal tearing at his flesh. Your God may seem to be dying now, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Son of Man stands firm as they press the crown of thorns down into his brow. Your God may seem to be dying now, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See him walking to Calvary, the blood dripping from his body. See the cross crashing down on his back as he stumbles beneath the load. It's Friday. Your God seems to be nearing death but Sunday's a coming. It's Friday, and see those Roman soldiers driving the nails into the feet and the hands of my Lord. Hear my Jesus cry, Father, forgive them. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross, bloody and dying. He seems near death, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The sky grows dark. The earth begins to tremble, and he who knew no sin became sin for us. Holy God, who will not abide with sin, pours out his wrath on that perfect sacrificial lamb who cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a horrible cry. Your God may seem dead now, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. 
And at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple that separates sinful man from holy God was torn from the top to the bottom because Sunday's coming. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Heaven is weeping and hell is partying. But that's because it's Friday. And they don't know it yet. But Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we get caught up so much in life that we fail to remember what it is that you've done in our lives. Your son came into this world to suffer, to die, and then to come back to life and to give us resurrection power. It may be Friday, but Sunday is always just around the corner. We thank you for the living God, that Lamb of God, which takes away all the sins of the world. In his name we pray. Amen.